Hello everyone, my name is Arti and this is the Mahabharata. Episode 45, Draupadi's Question. Also available online at www.themahabharatapodcast.com or for quibbles, facebook.com forward slash the Mahabharata podcast. In our last episode, we saw Yudhishthira being sucked into a whirlpool of destruction, swirling further and further down a vortex in a series of calamitous gambles. As he flails about gasping and grasping for a life raft, he loses everything. All his wealth, his kingdom, his armies, his slaves, even scandalously his brothers, each of whom he wages in the diminishing hope of recovering his losses. Soon he'll become the poster child at addiction treatment centres everywhere. The cautionary tale parents will tell wayward teenagers caught playing scripts in the alleyway. Mutinous youth will be directed to before and after pictures. In the morning, Yudhishthira, a free man, king of the world, rich, smiling. In the evening, stripped of everything, a helpless slave. Irreverent memes will ensue. Henry VIII playing strip poker against the Pope. Churchill stripping for Hitler. Jobs playing gates. Extraordinary, right? Will marvel Stephen Sacker on BBC's Hard Talk. Imagine the heads of Britain and France engaged in a poker game, betting everything, kingdoms, treasuries, peoples. King-to-be William will stake Harry, and when Harry's lost, he'll wager Kate. But our day is not over, not by a long shot. Pandava blood is in the water, and the sharks are now hungry for flesh. Dhritarashtra is like a coiled spring, ready to jump with excitement. The Kauravas are practically popping the champagne. Vidura, meanwhile, is bracing himself in the hallway, trying not to vomit. But defying every sane person's instincts, Yudhishthira is still seated at the table. What's he waiting for, you want to know? What more wreckage can he possibly effect? But he can, and Shakuni now goads him to it further. Oh, come on, that can't be all you have. Surely you have something you're hiding, some tiny thing that'll help you win your brothers back. Look at their forlorn faces. Won't you even try to recover them? Yudhishthira is wretched and distraught, having literally lost his marbles. I'll stake myself. Either I'll win them all back or will be your slaves forever. Perfect. Shakuni jiggles his dice. Ready? And he throws. That's a win. He wags his finger at Yudhishthira. Can, can't believe you'd be foolish enough to stake yourself. I've won you, Yudhishthira. I've won your freedom. You've consigned your brothers and yourself to a lifetime of slavery. And now you don't even have the freedom to stake anything else. Who would do that? But looking at Yudhishthira's head hanging in despair, he stops. Oh, but wait, you do have something. He laughs. There's your precious queen, 
Princess Draupadi, the most beautiful woman in the world, isn't she? They say she's a goddess. Surely she'll be lucky for you. Pledge her and win yourself back. A furor erupts in the audience. Even the press is appalled. Cameras pan the crowd for reaction, capturing shocked and incredulous faces. Bhishma looking grim, Drona looking astounded, the house priest Kripacharya looking perplexed, and King Dhritarashtra's face, full of anticipation. In the inevitable media recaps, the four brothers' faces will be displayed in simultaneous tiles, as if they're nominees at the Academy Awards. Panels of experts will scrutinize every fleeting expression to interpret emotion. But though all the brothers register rage, no one interrupts. Yudhishthira speaks like his heart is breaking. She is neither too short nor too tall, not too dark nor too light. Her eyes are like the petals of lotuses in the autumn, warm and lit with love. The fragrance of night lilies radiates from her. Her waist is slender like an altar, her hair dark and lustrous. For her lack of cruelty, for the fullness of her body, for the straightness of her character, does a man love a woman. She's peerless among women. My wife, the unsurpassed Panchali, Princess Draupadi. I will play you for her. Vidura buries his face in his hands and looks like he's going to collapse. He wheezes and heaves like a hyperventilating cobra. The elders in the assembly finally find their voice. Shocking, dreadful, what's the world come to? Pishma, Drona and others shake their heads to each other, making disapproving sounds. But nobody stops the play. Shakuni throws. Even before he can pronounce the result, Dhritarashtra jumps up, dropping all pretense and dignified composure. Did we win? Did we win? he asks eagerly. His joy is palpable. Tears flow in the hall when Shakuni wins. It's done, Yudhishthira. Draupadi now belongs to the Kauravas. Amidst the Kauravas' howls of jubilation, Duryodhana spies Vidura crumpled in the corner. All right, half and half, he needles his uncle maliciously. Go fetch her. Bring our new maid to us. The beloved wife of the invincible Pandavas, she'll sweep our floors and run our errands like every other household servant. It's going to be a joy to watch. Vidura explodes in disgust. You're a short-sighted twit, Duryodhana. You think the Pandavas will forgive you? You're sticking your head into a noose and you don't even know it. You're dangling on a thread in the middle of a gorge. You're placing poisonous snakes upon your head. You're teetering on the edge of a precipice, skating on thin ice. You're a little doe facing ferocious tigers, a kid swallowing a razor blade. Don't be stupid. Don't be prideful. This moment looks like victory, but I'm telling you, it's death. But seeing Duryodhana sneering as ever, Vidura turns to the assembly. Our sages say, be never hurtful nor cruel. Don't extort the last from a penniless man. Don't speak harsh and wounding words. 
don't injure a fellow man. Shwetrashtra's firstborn here is ripe for death. He can't see where this leads, but he's starting a blood feud to which there's only one end. Duryodhana, this crooked door tilts toward hell. Many will follow you through it and lose their lives. Your actions here spell the end of the house of the Kurus. Stop while you still can. Damn you, snaps Duryodhana and rises, intoxicated with his victory. He gestures to the usher standing in the hall. You, go, bring the mighty princess Draupadi here. Don't worry about this man's faint-hearted babbling. He's always hated us. You've nothing to fear from the Pandavas. With exceeding trepidation, the usher goes to find Draupadi. This is not her home, of course. She's a guest at Hastinapur, been here only once before when she first got married. Where might she be? He searches first in the Pandavas' guest quarters, but she's not there. Then he knocks on various doors in the women's quarters, getting himself smacked a few times in the process. Finally, he locates her. She's in the bathhouse, preparing for a bath. It's a time of the month, you see, when women don't mingle with others, ostensibly because they're impure. A tradition possibly begun by squeamish men, but equally possibly perpetuated by smart women who appreciated the break from household drudgery. Who really knows? Either way, Tropody's in a state of undress, taking it easy, getting a hot oil treatment on her hair, facial, mani-pedi. When the usher informs her she's wanted in the hall, she shoes him away. I haven't even showered yet. But the usher stands on the other side of the door, anxiously insistent. They demand you come now, my lady. Then he feels empowered to speak in a bolder voice, creeping into the room like a dog crawling up to a lion. Your husband, Yudhishthira, has lost you in a gambling match, Draupadi. You belong to Duryodhana now. I'm to fetch you so you can begin your chores. Astonished at the news, no less than the man's chutzpah, Draupadi rebukes him sharply. How dare you address me like this? Where's my husband? And what rubbish are you talking? Yasha nervously acquaints her with the day's events. The king was gambling, you see, and he lost everything. He lost your kingdom, your treasures, as well as his brother's. When nothing else was left, he staked you, my lady. Nonsense. What son of a king would hazard his own wife? You go back to the assembly hall and ask him, whom did you lose first, yourself or me? When you find out, come back and tell me. Relieved to have an out, the usher races back through the twenty hallways, arriving to the assembly panting. The lady demands, as the owner of whom did you lose me? Whom did you lose first, yourself or me? The men in the hall look at each other, confounded. What does that mean? One of the centuplets patiently explains the point to Duryodhana. It's a matter of law, brother. You see, if Yudhishthira has already enslaved himself, he has no authority to stake her, since cross-culturally, according to the laws of chattel slavery, slaves can't own property. 
We see this in the Code of Hammurabi, in the Pax Romana, in the treatises of Pharaonic Egypt, not to mention those of the Shang dynasty. But another demurs. But a, pre but a woman's not property, is she? Think of the wedding hymn of the Rig Veda. You're grasping hands as partners. The wife is not a chattel of the husband. Remember the words of our great mother Shakuntala? A wife is half the man, she said, better than his best friend. Ergo, at most, staking her was redundant. In the act of betting himself, Yudhishthira simultaneously had already wagered his wife. Others are dismissive. It's a riddle, stupid. You're overthinking it, like if a tree falls in the forest. There's no right answer. She's just trying to befuddle us with words. Not one for deep reflection, Duryodhana shouts impatiently. Tell her to come and ask herself. Whatever she has to say, she can say right here in the assembly. The usher hesitates, looking for direction to Yudhishthira. Go! barks Duryodhana, and he flees. Arriving back at the bathhouse, he speaks to Draupadi sorrowfully. It's the end times, my lady. Prince Duryodhana commands that you come to the hall and speak for yourself. They insist that you come right now, just this minute, exactly as you are. He gestures over his shoulder to a phalanx of armed guards ready to grab her. Draupadi is dressed in a single towel, hair still scattered. Seeing the soldiers, she quickly retreats into the chamber, but they surround her. In this way, they march her through the halls, hair in disarray, menstruating in a single scrap of cloth. As she walks through corridor after corridor, mortified, Draupadi starts to tremble. At the assembly hall, she tries to duck behind the door, but the men watching the entrance signal to the others and cheers go up among the corridors. Whistling and applauding, they laugh gleefully. Bring her here, my good man, all the way here into the center. The Ryodhana is feeling jovial. The corridors want to look at her. We want to see her face. But the usher shrinks away. I cannot, he mumbles. Who am I to order a Draupadi? Duryodhana laughs merrily. You're an idiot. What are you afraid of? These parlous slaves sitting here dumb? The great indomitable wolf belly? He mocks Pima. They can't do anything. Have no fear. But when the usher retreats, Duryodhana lets him go. Dushasana, my brother, you know how to do this. Bring the great empress forward. Let's have a look at the bride of the Pandavas. Let's talk about Dushasana. What's in a name, you ask? Well, if you were named bad idea, bad influence, or bad advice, no doubt you'd rise above it heroically and wear the name with irony, like a fat man named Skinny or a burly man named Sue. But Dushasana lost that battle in early childhood. The younger brother of Duryodhana follows his brother into every malevolent caper. Until today, he's on the world stage and every eye is upon him. Now, in the grand scheme of things, Dushasana is a meagre character in our tale. But he has one shining moment in the sun. And this is it. 
How he conducts himself here will earn him infamy to endure through the lurching locomotive of time. Soon his name will be synonymous with petty cruelty and brutish male violence, and he'll become the archetype of the mustachioed molester, inspiring legions of villains in B-grade Bollywood movies. Today he's tasked with bringing the slight quivering figure of Draupadi before the insolent gaze of the male assembly. She, his cousin-in-law, noblewoman, mother of five. What a lowly servant refuses to do, Dushasana executes with relish. Come on, Draupadi, you've been one fair and square. You're now going to pleasure us, the core of us. Come into the hall. Draupadi tries frantically to escape. Clutching her towel, eyes wildly searching the mezzanine for the women she knows must be there. But Dushasana grabs her forcefully. He fondles her beautiful long hair, then yanks at it viciously and begins dragging her with it into the hall. Stop, Dushasana! The cameras can hear her pleading, though she's speaking in a whisper. I have my period, you idiot. I'm just in my towel. Don't take me into the hall like this. I can't go before people like this. But he thrashes her about cruelly. Cry for help, Draupadi. Cry for your husband or your dad or your brother or Krishna or whoever. Nobody cares. Nobody cares if you're menstruating. Nobody cares if you're wearing one cloth or naked. You belong to us now, you understand? You're our slave. If we want to strip you naked, we will. Her hair wild, towel almost undone, tossed viciously by Dushasana, she whispers again in tears. These men are my gurus and relatives, you twit. I'm your sister-in-law for pity's sake. I'm in my month. This is a shameful thing you're doing. The elders are enabling you, but don't debase me. My husbands will never forgive you. But her cries only serve to empower him. Shaking her until she's close to fainting, he laughs sadistically. Enough of your airs, Queen Draupadi. You're our slave now. Get used to it. He drags her into the centre of the hall and flings her forward, face strewn with tears, clutching at her towel, trembling violently. Even the cameramen are embarrassed to watch. She gives her husband a furious look as they kneel before the corvers in docile positions. Not their kingdom gone, their riches looted, their jewels plundered, nor their freedom lost, hurt as that one scorching glance from Draupadi. Grandfather Bhishma clears his throat. <clears throat> You've posed an interesting question, my dear, but it's not an easy one. A man without property has none to stake, that's true, but on the other hand, the wife is the inalienable property of the man. Yudhishthira chose to play, he voluntarily enslaved himself, and Shakuni insists he didn't cheat. So it's all very confusing. Dharma is subtle, you see, difficult to know. Even standing barefoot in one scrap of cloth, Draupadi responds with dignity. I'm a daughter-in-law of this mighty house and my elders tell me they don't know what's right. 
pardon, grandfather, you say my husband made a choice. But he's a novice, playing in good faith, a trusting and truthful man set upon by cunning, ignoble tricksters who love the game. When they challenge him and egg him on, how's that fair or proper? But please resolve my question. If a man's lost himself, does he legitimately have anything to stake? The elders are properly flummoxed. Brows will be furrowed, lawyers will opine, Supreme Court precedents will be argued, as the great minds of the generation will puzzle over the question. In our next episode, the debate will continue. Vidro will try once again to talk some sense into the core of us. Karana, meanwhile, will make his own learned contributions and Dushasana will cement his place as cretinous bottom feeder in the annals of Indian history. The most thoughtful analysis will come from Vikarana, one of the younger Kaurava brothers, who will try to submit that Yudhishthira's gambles are void on account of addiction before he's tackled and gagged by his brothers. How that goes, let's see if you'll join me for another episode of the Mahabharata. <laughs>